Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Regina Bradley, the author of Chronicling Stanconia, The Rise of the Hip-Hop South. This is her first book. She's a professor of English and African Diaspora Studies at Kennesaw State University in Georgia. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Bradley. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, one reason I love this book is because rap music is distinctly American, and you start the book with an explanation of how you moved to the Deep South from Georgia, and that rap music was your introduction to your new culture. Your grandparents, you write, were trailblazers in the South, and they had their own assumptions about how life should be. But you found yourself learning about your identity through both of those things, music and grandparents. So how are rap music and black identity linked? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it was, it was Southern hip hop that introduced me to this idea of a contemporary South, which my grandparents really couldn't, they could talk about it, but they weren't exactly living it the same way that I was on a day-to-day basis, you know? So um, hip hop was kind of an escape, but also an opportunity to think about things that were happening in the world around me on my own terms and not necessarily from the viewpoint of uh, the folks who are raising me. Um, but to get to the larger part of the question, I think that uh, rap music is an opportunity to complicate what folks think the Black experience is. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, granted, it, it took place in, in New York. New York is definitely the mecca of, of hip hop, uh, but it still has very Southern or even globally Southern roots because so many of folks who are pioneers in hip hop came from like Jamaica and the Caribbean. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely part of that. But I think it's the opportunity to complicate what we think the Black experience is, particularly after the Civil Rights Movement. Um, the, the shadow of the movement is so long and, and extremely uh, engaged that uh, it's, it's necessary for us to find different ways to kind of talk about what's going on in the world around us and popular culture and music is one way to do that and hip hop encompasses all of that, so. So uh, explain a little bit if you can, um, the roots of how hip hop kind of spreads to the South. Um, you say it started in New York. What are the roots yeah. of it in the South? Well, I would, you know, <laughs> I know all the, the New York period folks are like to tread carefully. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you're, you're good. You're good. Um, this is all friendly oh, no, terrain here. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. So, I mean, I think <laughs> it takes root in the South in a little bit of a different way than, say, in New York. If New York hip-hop was an opportunity to speak to uh, the changing norms and the frustrations of uh, black and brown teens in, in the New York boroughs, then hip hop in the South is definitely an opportunity to think through what does the Southern culture scape and landscape look like after the civil rights movement. And a lot of your Southern rappers were using the civil rights movement as the, as the jumpstart for how they were thinking about what civil rights is, how that looks, especially because the South is ground zero for what so many people believe to be the fight for black civil rights. Um, but what's interesting about how it took place in the South is that even if you think about New York hip hop, um, sonically, the, there's difference, right? Like there, there's an emphasis on jazz and improvisation and, and lyrics, so to speak. And in the South, that's, that's a little different. Um, rap, not only is it, you know, lyrical, but that's not necessarily the, the litmus test for whether or not it's quote unquote good hip hop. Um, it's the way that it sounds in your car, for example. So even the way that hip hop resonates with how we listen to the music is different based on our regional uh, affiliation. Um, and then on top of that, I think it's also just, you know, what 
type of memories folks are pulling from impacts what the type of the music is. And ultimately what Southern hip hop does that distinguishes it from um, its East Coast and, and West Coast you know, counterparts is that it doesn't shy away from asking those really difficult questions about how do we recognize and de-romanticize the effects in the aftermath of the civil rights movement? And they're like, we're going to have these conversations because for so many people, you know, the civil rights movement is the be all end all of not only Southern modernity, but also um, everything was fixed, so to speak. So, you know, elders are like, don't, don't speak bad about the civil rights movement. Right. <laughs> and younger folks are like, well. Yeah, and, and we're going to get to <laughs> yeah, and I want to I want to get to your grandparents' reaction to some of this. Um, but but uh, bef- let's get to some of the nitty gritty here with Outcast. So before I ask you to describe the first time you heard uh, Outcast and how that introduction grew into this love you have of their music and now a whole book, uh, so I want to tell you about the first time I heard them. Uh, yeah, I was okay. a white. Yeah, I, 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 how did you become outcasted? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly. Right. Uh, I was a white kid growing up in New York, uh, New York City. I'm from the Bronx. Um, out, out, an outer borough kid, as they say. Uh, mm. I was exposed to rap music as soon as I left my parents' apartment. Um, uh, most of my friends, especially when I was younger, uh, were black. So along with the rock and roll my parents played in our house all the time, I grew up with Wu-Tang, Biggie, uh, Tupac, Jay-Z, and all the rest. Um, uh, the first time I heard Outkast was in high school. My friend Jesse played it for me. And I went, whoa, uh, this sounds so different than anything I'd heard. Um, and maybe I was just sheltered, but, but, but I was like, whoa, this is, this is different. They're fun. They're, they're, they're interesting. The beats are unforgettable. Um, and I'll never forget hearing, and I don't know if I want to imitate it completely, but I'll never forget hearing, aha, what's that fuss? Everybody moved to the back of the bus. <laughs> um, now they said it different, right? They said it was like, Aha, what's that for us? Everybody move yeah. to the back of the book, right? Now I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not appropriating here. I'm just, you know, uh, I'm just imitating the way it sounded to me. So uh, first of all, uh, what was your experience for the first time hearing them? And did you say the same thing I did, which is, whoa, this is different. Um, so the very first time I heard Outcast actually was on uh, an episode of Martin. This, the comedy show yeah, Martin right, right. In the 90s, um, and they were the clothing act for the players ball right mm-hmm. um, and but I really didn't get into it until 1998 when I had moved to Albany uh, and I you know you were from New York I'm from I was living in Northern Virginia so Northern Virginia right. was many many New York in terms of what <laughs> we were listening to in terms so, of music right yeah sure yeah you know what I'm saying because it's right there right, right so it was like right. okay so I tried to bring what I was listening to from DC. I remember having all of these mixtapes that I brought with me that had Wu-Tang and all of these old Wyclef's John. Like it was, it was all New York everything, you know what I'm saying? And trying to talk to my, my new classmates and, and potentially new friends about hip hop. And they looking at me like, um, no, nah, we don't. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't do it like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah they just like, we don't, we don't do it like that. So it was, mm. it was like, how do I survive, first of all? Because I'm about to start high school. You know, you know I don't already want to start in the tank before I even get started. So I was like, <laughs> let, me, let me listen to what folks are listening to. So I listened to the radio like 24-7. And just the way that the hip hop was, was given and the songs and the voices and everything. I was just like, oh, this is totally different totally different in a good way you know what I'm saying it, it, it forced me to think about where I was you know what I mean and yeah. also forced me to recognize that Albany Georgia which is in the southwest corner of, of the state is 
you know, small town, rural Georgia. And that's totally different than metropolitan Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia. So it was it was life or death. That's it. <laughs> so, so when and when and how do you realize that outcast is not just something to listen to, but something to study? Because, uh, well, one of the one of the earlier reasons is that it was all that folks talk about Dungeon Family and being and growing up in Georgia, right outside of Atlanta, you know, and Atlanta is is the mecca, so to speak, for us, right? Um, couldn't go to school, you couldn't engage without talking about Outcast, without recognizing that you know folks were playing their music and and folks were using the lingo, you know what I'm saying? Right, and I was right. like, oh okay, but it really wasn't until graduate school um, I took a a, ser- a seminar of black black popular music with Dr. Portia Moultsby. And uh, we had this conversation about hip hop. And, and as a Southerner, I was like, so all of these folks we're talking about, I'm familiar with them, but that's not who's in my car right now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, that's right. not who I'm listening to. And she gave me the, the, you know, the rallying cry that I would recognize later. But she was like, so what are you going to do about it? And I was like, oh, okay. So fast forward a couple of years later, I finished a PhD. Um, and I'm talking to friends at a conference. And they're talking about how excited they are that uh, Illmatic is turning 20 and I'm like but so is Southern Playlist Cadillac Music and nobody's really talking about that what's up with that uh, <laughs> so I, I ended up um, doing a series of YouTube conversations that became outcasted conversations. Oh, I saw that yeah I saw yeah. that yeah I saw that and it was you know basically just me hitting up friends and folks whose work I admired and I was like yo let's talk about outcast on Google Hangout and post it and they're like let's do it <laughs> yeah. so we had a good time and so it, it becomes this thing of kind of cultural cultural um, texture. So I, I had no idea um, until I read your book that outcast is not just a play on words, but it's actually a moniker. It's, it's, um, it's uh, what's the, what are they called again? Yeah, uh, operating under the critical. No, 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 but no, I, I was going to say what they're, but uh, what is the thing called when the first letter of each, an acronym, I'm sorry, acronym. it's an acronym. Yeah, it's an acronym. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an acronym. Uh, Operating under the crooked American system for too long. Yep. Um, so uh, how do they get the name and, and also describe who is in Outcast and how they formed? And so uh, we have Andre 3000, of course, and Big Boy with an I, Andre Benjamin and Anton Patton. So uh, explain uh, who they are, how they formed and how they got the name. So what, what had happened was... <laughs> <laughs> right. What had happened, right. Right. What happened was, uh, so, you know, in the, I, th- I think it's important for folks to understand, and, and, I, and I pointed this in the introduction of the book, is that Atlanta was known as a music city way before hip-hop. So, I mean, like, it was the funk capital, too, you know what I mean? So, folks like Bunny Jackson Ransom, who was the former wife of uh, Maynard Jackson, uh, folks were talking to her about bringing in funk, so SOS band, Cameo, all of those folks. So, like, there was a funk scene that was in Atlanta that influenced folks like uh, Organized Noise who would ultimately come to mentor Outkast. So how they got together were they went to uh, Tri-Cities High School. They went to the same school. Uh, they got together. Initially, they were called the Misfits, um, but they didn't want to be confused with another group that was called the Misfits. So uh, the word on the street is they went down the dictionary to find synonyms to being a misfit and Outkast was there. They were like, change the C to a K. Boom, we got it. So Outkast. Okay. And what... What made them so different? I mean, they truly do sound, um, they, they just truly, it just sounds different than most other, not only rap music, but all music. 
I think it's, it's, it's important to kind of recognize one of the reasons that Outcast is still so significant is that they intentionally tried to improve and evolve their sound and their music. So if you're listening to something like Southern Playlistic, which is their first album, it's doing a lot of work because on the one hand, it's showing you that Atlanta is a hip hop city, but also hip hop takes root differently when it's, you know, so they use the language and, and lingo and slang in ways that other Southern hip hop groups were reflecting um, and mimicking what was going on in New York, Outkast was one of the first folks to be like, nope, we're going to pull from where we're from and use that as a catalyst for talking about this idea of a Southern experience. And ultimately, they were like, okay, so we introduced this idea of a Southern experience. They go to the Source Awards in 1995. They win Best New Album, Five Source Magazine. Folks are in their feelings, and they're like, oh, okay. So they get rejected from mainstream hip-hop, so to speak. And they use that as a catalyst for... Um, AT Aliens, which is their second album, and they're like, okay, we don't fit in on the on the East Coast, we don't really fit in on the West Coast, we go into space. So hence AT Aliens, we can do what we want. And so, <laughs> but so, but but where does that sound? I mean, they're they're the way they make beats and the way they put different interesting sounds in there. Um, where was that? Where did that come from inside their heads? So a lot of that was a two-legged organized noise. So you know, you have. Um, Ray Murray, Rico Wade, and Patrick Sleepy Brown. And Patrick Brown's dad was a member of the funk group Brick. So a lot of that um, intense live instrumentation, the funk aesthetic is infused in that work is coming from that. So organized noise has a lot to do with that initial um, sonic signature that Outkast presents. And once Outkast started to go out and produce on their own, along with their DJ David Sheets, they become Earth Tone 3. Um, and then that's when they start to pull from a little bit of everything. So you get the influences of EDM music, metal, um, country, bluegrass, all of it becomes part of this increasingly signature sound. So one of the reasons that Outkast stands out sonically is that they're not afraid to experiment with what they think Southern music is supposed to sound like. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was, that was actually part of my next question. You say they, they, in the book, you say they weren't just artists from the South, but truly Southern artists. Um, right. And you contrast their experience with Criss Cross, who had their Southerness kind of stripped from them by record labels in order to have the broad appeal. Um, so why did the pop music industry strip the South from the identity of Southern Black men, but not from Northern Black men? In other words, Northern Black men were allowed to be, um, you know, Biggie and Jay-Z. They made themselves by embracing the New York in them but these Atlanta hip hop artists have this sort of multi-layered challenge. Well, part of it is, is regional bias. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but the other, I think the other half of it is that because hip hop started in the Northeast, then that becomes the norm and that becomes the standard. And if you don't meet that norm or standard, then you won't get a second look. So if you think about folks like Criss Cross, who are from Atlanta, um, there wasn't a market yet for people who didn't sound like they were influenced and inspired by the Northeast or the West Coast, you know? So they were, there wasn't room to articulate that. But I think that with Outkast and Organized Noise in particular, uh, they made room, they carved out space for this contemporary sonic Southern hip hop sound mm. that um, caught on and folks were like, oh, so they can do something that sounds Southern, right? So, yeah. So. Uh... So where is Atlanta culturally um, when Outkast is beginning their careers? Um, and I guess that's maybe a way to ask the, uh, the more personal question for you, which is uh, how do your grandparents react to Outkast? <laughs> <laughs> where were your grandparents culturally? 
So <laughs> answer both Atlanta and grandma. Atlanta. Okay. So uh, I'll do the Atlanta part first. Uh, so Atlanta at the time the outcast came out was trying to pull away from being this regional hub in the South to an international city. And it's what Maurice Hobson calls the Olympification of the city, right. In his, uh, in his book yeah, um, right. for the black Mecca. So politically, culturally, Atlanta was trying to move in a direction that was trying to attract folks from outside of the region to come and build and, and economically engage with the city. Um, so they're getting ready for the Olympics. Um, I think they just won the bid. And um, what was happening was that they were kind of presenting this pristine, sanitized idea about what upward mobility looked like for Black Atlanta. And that could be a little bit of everybody. So you go back to that initial campaign slogan, Atlanta is a city too busy to hate. Well, they were too busy to hate, but in, in the inside of that, a lot of the working class Black communities in the city of Atlanta, where these rappers are coming from, are getting pushed to the side in favor of this larger narrative that's pushing them out of the conversation altogether. And so this is so, part of like Atlanta's attempt to appeal for the Olympics and to yeah. show themselves as like, we're, we're not just a Southern town here, we're the real deal. Yeah, like we're, we're a legit city, we're a legit metropolitan. Um, and, and we want you to bring your business and bring out, because look at all the things we have. We have the AUC, we have these pockets of upwardly black middle-class mobility that are attractive and you can live here and you can enjoy yourself here. And the contradict that was, well, not necessarily contradict, but the, the tension existed because you also have working class black Atlanta communities that are being ostracized and, and erased. And what Southern hip hop out of the city was doing at the time was speaking to those issues and concerns in ways that the city officials and the campaigning and propaganda that was being pushed out wasn't. Um, but in terms of my grandmother. <laughs> yeah, so explain, explain where they are and how they react to the Olympification of Atlanta and their history. And then also how they, um, when they heard outcast, what they say to you. <laughs> So um, my, my, my grandfather, my papa is deceased. Um, he, he passed in uh, 2009, but my grandmother, uh, who I call Nanabu, is still definitely still here. And she mm. doesn't really do hip hop. She calls it the hip hops. Um, <laughs> so that should tell you yeah, that yeah. She, doesn't, she doesn't listen <laughs> to rap. Uh, but she was very, when I was, when I was, when I was a kid, and when I was a teenager, she was very adamant about what I was listening to because she was very gung ho about me being ladylike and how I would be presented in society. So that should tell you. I had to so she was worried that, she was worried that this rap would sort of rub off on you. Yeah. She, rub off on me in the sense that I, I would uh, not be able to set myself up for success because as an educator, that was very, that for her, that was the gateway for her and my grandfather was, you know, the more educated you are, the more opportunities that you have, which in itself is a very Southern black uh, inference. It's like, you know, if you want to be successful, then you need to be educated, you need to be literate, right? Um, and they saw me listening to, to rap and they really didn't say anything, but they were also very adamant and very clear that, just because you're listening to it doesn't mean this is how I want you to act. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, but it it also speaks to where I I would imagine where they um sort of came from and and the difficulties that they saw that that uh, you know um that African Americans had to um you know present themselves in the absolute best you know not the word best but the absolute sort of most sterilized way in order to have a chance. Yeah, and also so there was the belief that you would remain invisible to the harm and the trauma if you carried yourself in a particular way at all mm. times. 
Um, Cause uh, you know, my grandfather is from Athens, Georgia. Um, and my grandmother is from Leary, Georgia, which is, you know, Northern Georgia and Southern Georgia respectively. Um, and it's, it was interesting because they, they ended up going to uh, all of our alma mater, which is Albany State University. Um, and they're, you know, they were there um, trying to do better for themselves and trying to get college educated. Because again, they felt like education was, was the gateway to opportunity. Um, and they instilled that into all of their kids, my, my dad and my aunt um, included. Uh, my dad got away from it. He finished college, but he didn't do a graduate program uh, <laughs> because he went to the Navy. Uh, and my, my granddad wasn't having that. Uh, and as soon as my granddad saw that I was smart, or at least he thought I was smart, he was like, okay, I see that you're smart and you're not dumb. There's no excuse. So um, just being able to, to find that, that education uh, soft spot or sweet spot was really important, not only for my folks, but for me also, because hip hop was an education for me. Like it was an education for me to kind of see what was going on in the world around me in ways that my grandparents couldn't speak to because that wasn't part of their daily experience. So, so what does this all say about, um, you know, there are people who are afraid that pop culture um, rubs off on everybody and that pop culture, um, rap music, movies, video games can, you know, can turn the people who are listening to them or watching them into the thing that they're rapping about or the thing that they're shooting up or whatever else. What does this say that obviously most people don't do those things and you've become a doctor here? Yeah, I, I did become a doctor. Um, not the one that my, my father-in-law wanted. He's like, you can't write a prescription. Um, but I, I think I think it shows the the significance of pop culture as, as a tool um, and it's not just entertainment uh, and it's important to kind of recognize that and a lot of the conversations that we're having about race identity region um, your belief system usually take place because of something we saw on TV or heard on the radio or saw on social media so it shows the power of popular culture as as an interrogation tool but also as a site of inquiry um, and I think that that's what, what it is, but it's, this is a question I often raise to my students in classes. I'm like, you know, you can listen to all of this, but you also need to have a critical ear. And I think that's what's important in, in finding that balancing act is to teach folks that you can enjoy the pop culture, but you also need to have the, the range and the, the willingness to have conversations about what type of text and message is being presented to you through the culture. Yeah, the, t the term that I got growing up was always be an active viewer, be an active listener. Um, and I think that you put it uh, really well there. Um, okay, so so uh, uh, we, we got grandma, we figured out uh, why she was worried about you listening to rap music. Um, <laughs> we figured out that, that, that her fears were unfounded. Um, I had just one question. This is more about hip hop history here, but how are Southern rappers viewing this famous East Coast, West Coast feud? Um, where did they Not kind of fun. fall? <laughs> where did they fall into? I mean, they're probably talking about it, you know, <laughs> right. probably, they're watching it from the sideline because there's well, those this, guys are crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And this widespread belief that, yo, we're not even part of the conversation. So when Andre comes out at the Source Awards and he's like, the South got something to say, that's the rallying cry. Like, oh yeah. Oh, it's our turn. It's our time. Okay, let's do it. And we haven't looked back since. Like I haven't. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that that's what the challenge was is that when when Dre gives that rallying cry that hootie hoo if you will and they're like oh so we could do our own thing 
helping folks get exposed to the complexity of what a hip hop South looks like. Because what hip hop in Atlanta is sounding like is different than what's going on in New Orleans, is different than what's going on in Houston and Memphis, and all of these folks who are who are actively recording and making music from these different parts of the South are like, oh, okay, let's let's do it and present this non-monolithic Southern experience that people don't know what to do with because it, it, it doesn't fit into these neat and organized categories that folks had in place for Southern Blackness to begin with, so. But they, they, don't, they don't take sides, I mean, they don't take sides particularly. Some folks might have took sides, you know, if you're closer, yeah. if you're closer to the West Coast, like the Texas folks and the Mississippi <laughs> folks, they might have been like the East Coast ain't doing it, right? Or, I yeah, mean, yeah. but for the most part, nobody really cared what the South was saying at that time because they were like, oh, y'all don't know anything about hip hop. And Interesting. Well, so I, I, I want to ask you about a few of the songs. Uh, Bombs Over Baghdad. Now, that is my favorite Outcast song. And um, uh, it was incredible to see live. I actually did see Outcast live at um, the theater at Madison Square Garden in probably, I don't know, 2000 or 2001. It was fantastic. Um, but I'll never forget seeing that song, Bombs Over Baghdad. It was just an incredible thing to see on stage. Um, and critics, critics actually say it's one of the greatest songs ever. Um, I didn't know this till I looked it up as I was getting ready to tape this episode, um, but it's listed on like the top 100 songs that Rolling Stone did. So uh, that's an incredible thing to say about it. So I guess I would just ask, why didn't Bombs Over Baghdad ever hit the top 10? Um, and I, I want to tell our listeners here, it was um, released after the first Gulf War, but before the second one. So this is not a reflection of the the war that was started in 2003. Um, the, the lyrics are kind of all over the place in it. So uh, what were they trying to say? Well, I think it was a little bit of everything. Um, what's interesting about how the song was created when I talked to Mr. DJ was that they went to a rave the night before. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, you can hear the influence of, of, of the, you know, of EDM definitely um, on the song. Uh, but I think they were talking about a little bit of everything. They were talking about police brutality. They were talking about drug use. They were talking about um, just all, like, I think the, the reason that, like you said, it was kind of all over the place was because they were trying to show that life isn't linear. Like these things don't just happen in a bubble. They all, you know, happen, at, can happen at the same time. Um, and, and what was interesting for me, at least, is that you have Andre who opens the song and he's rapping so fast. You're like, wait, whoa, hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely had to read the lyrics on that one on Google or something because, uh, yeah, it's quick. Yeah, yeah. And you're just like, oh, man. Like, I mean, like, so, yeah, you, you're thinking about the, the imagery. Like, I mean, literally the song, Bob, like, you're thinking about the imagery, the war imagery that's there. But I think he's also speaking to a lot of the traumas and instances that happen to Southern Black folks that get swept, swept to the side. And he was kind of bringing those back full circle. And, I, and Big Boy does the same thing. So. And why do they choose Baghdad? Why, why do they choose? Why is it bombs over Baghdad and not, I don't know, Atlanta or somewhere else? I mean, I don't know. I'll ask them like, you know, why Baghdad? But I mean, like, if you think about Baghdad, that's the type of violent visual that you get. And, okay, and the yeah. song is talking about violent things. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I got it. Okay. Yeah, um, so I'm thinking uh, what about Rosa Parks? Uh, is this a tribute? Is the song a tribute to her? Um, that the proverbial bus was now a place where everyone could participate in culture just based on hearing the lyrics? I mean, honestly, she ain't even mentioned in the song. Which I know. Is, that's what's so odd. Yeah, but I mean, a lot of folks don't know that. They're just like, they yeah. 
they're being disrespectful, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier in, in the interview, Evan. I was like, you know, we have these concrete, non-fluid ideologies about what Southern resistance and protest looks like and what the South is supposed to do because of the civil rights movement, right? Mm. So if you think about the bus in the South, of course you're gonna go to the Montgomery bus boycott to a Rosa Parks. But what was interesting, at least for me, is that for young Southerners who, who rode the bus to school, I mean, yeah, you can think about busing, you know what I mean? But at the same time, it was like, that's where all the cool kids hang out. It was the back of the bus. <laughs> yeah, okay. That, that, that. that sounds really simple, right? But I mean, yeah. like, you put that in conversation with this idea of integration and busing, right? There's also, you know, Spike Lee's 1995 film, Get on the Bus. Um, it's just refiguring what these Southern iconographies mean. And I think that's super important that Rosa Parks came out on Equimini because that's exactly what they're doing throughout the whole album is re renegotiating what they think their Southernness means and what it means to their fans and to themselves. Hmm. Uh, hey Ya is like the Spring Break song. Uh, I re actually remember distinctly hearing it on Spring Break. Um, did they consider songs that got truly famous and had major crossover appeal their best songs? I don't think so. At least not not for me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't ask about you though. I asked about that. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I can't speak for them, but I okay. mean, like, what, gotcha. I, what I think is, is interesting about, yeah. you know, I think a, a really good example of that is Coachella 2014, because they, they were the opening act for both Fridays, like both weekends. And that first weekend that they opened, they went through their entire catalog, including Speaker Box and The Love Below. But what was interesting and what really kind of pissed me off as I was watching, because I can't afford Coachella, so I had to watch it on YouTube <laughs> like everybody else, um, was that, you know, they that uh, Andre performed Hey Ya and folks were leaving. And I'm like, what are y'all doing? What? Like they did the <laughs> whole catalog. So I mean, like, I think that kind of speaks to it. And, and, and even when I teach my outcast class with my students, I ask them, you know, have you ever been exposed to outcast music? And if you have, what is it? And that's, that's the song, that's the album that, that my students are like, yeah, they did speaker box and the love below. And I was like, but they have this whole catalog before that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so why did their style of, um, uh, their style of storytelling, they, they use words that they essentially make up. Um, yeah. Do they want you to focus on the music or the words? Both of them. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where the I think that's where the genius lies. I think it's also kind of like a, a dare. Like I dare you to say something about this language and not, and not talk about this music and vice versa. Um, mm. But I also think it speaks to uh, the inherent genius of 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 black folks, particularly Southern black folks. Um, and they're like, and we can continuously uh, evolve and develop what that genius looks like. And that's, that's one of the reasons that Outcast is so, just so dope, is that they keep giving you new things to think about. Like, one of the questions that I get asked all the time is, do you want another album? And I'm like, we haven't done enough of what they gave us. Researching. How are they viewed? Um, you know, the, anyone who gets famous is always by someone in the music industry um, who probably didn't get famous, they always say, oh, they sold out or they were not the way they used to be. Um, were they viewed at all as sellouts among more underground um, rappers? I don't think so. Because um, I think, you know, if we think about what selling out means, it means that you kind of become, have this cookie cutter formula and that's definitely not them. Like they were continuously... Mm renegotiating and reconsidering what their art and what their sound was supposed to be. And I don't think that's selling out. Um, I think they got to a place where they could, 
uh, not have to worry about that. You just be like, well, you know, either like you either like the music or you don't. And I think that goes back to why they name themselves, you know, outcasts. And if we're outcasted, why should we care what the mainstream and what the folks think? Um, but I also think it was inspiration for the folks who were not mainstream to continue kind of think about it. So you put folks in conversation with, with or put outcasts in conversation with folks like Big Crick, for example. And it wasn't until recently that Crick, who's from Meridian, Mississippi, was being on folks' radar. But I mean, like, if you listen to the music, you can hear the influence of what it means to be experimental and, and looking through that in through a Southern lens. So I have um, a couple of questions that are a little bit um, more... Uh, general questions about rap music, um, and then we'll finish on an outcast question. But uh, in general, um, I want you to just talk about the use of the N-word in rap. This is a perennial question. We hear it all the time. So mm -hmm. explain why it's it's so central to rap music. It's it's certainly in um, you know many of the songs. It's bleeped out of most of the ones you hear on the radio. But um, you know when you listen to the explicit versions, it's there. Um, it's present. Um, all the major acts you know use it. Um, um, so I guess, A, explain why the N-word is often there, um, how we should react to it, maybe differently as white people, um, at least me, um, and help us just understand it. That's one of the questions I, I honestly can't answer, because on the one hand, I'm like, it's part of how folks communicate with each other. That's, I mean, like, that's, for me, that's like a baseline answer. Um, what's interesting is, is I have, I've had this conversation with, with white students when we're having these, having conversations about hip hop and I'm like, why do you feel the need you have to say it? Why? And they just kind of look at me and I'm like, I mean, is it, is it, is it because you feel like you just love music and you have to say it, but I mean, to be adamant about having like, I don't see what the problem is. I think that's part of the challenge. Um, but it also goes back to what folks like Greg Tate talk about with everything but the burden. Like folks want to say that, oh, it's just, it's a cultural thing and want to work through it. But I mean, like, if you think about the implications behind what breaking down that word means or censoring that type of word, are you also ready to have conversations about why it's being censored and who it's being censored for? And most folks don't want to take it that far, right? Mm. Um, but yeah, just, it's, it's, it's one of those messy, complicated conversations that I'm still trying to work through myself. I don't have a, a straightforward, you know, politicians answered. <coughs> Excuse me. But it's one of those questions about why, you know, why does it have to be a universal word when the, the implications of that word aren't universal? Ah, uh, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, do Southern rappers use it differently than Northern ones? Does it have different meaning when it comes from a Southern rapper? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe, maybe the, the narrative that they're talking about where this use might be a little bit different, but the intention and the meaning, I think, are not, are not distinguishable. What current events are shaping hip hop? We heard about um, what uh, was shaping Outkast when they were first um, coming onto the scene. Um, you say the South is in charge now. Explain that. Well, you know, Atlanta is where everybody wants to go and they don't leave. Um, is the joke here, uh, living here, is that we need to have a lottery. <laughs> <laughs> who gets to stay and who gets to go? Who gets to stay and who gets to go? Um, but I, I think that, you know, the South is, is definitely on top. Um, you know, you have folks like Designer, for example, who for, for months I thought was future <laughs> because they sound just alike, but Designer's from New York. He's from Brooklyn. Um, and, and, you know, you have, what's interesting is that Southern, the Southern sound, the use of bass, the slang, 
all of that is still very much popular and has transcended this regional physical space into this larger international space even like you know in for, like trap for example isn't just coming from the south like it's not just a southern export anymore it's international it's in china it's in um you know egypt it's in france it's everywhere uh and i think that that kind of speaks to um southern hip-hop's ability to be translated and to be engaged by more folks who are not just southern because of the experimental value of it um but in terms of what's influencing hip-hop today i mean clearly you have the, the black lives matter movement you have all of these um these murders um by police and also just vigilante folks all of these things have been simmering for for years but they're finally kind of coming to the forefront because of the use of social media um and you have folks who are protesting this and then speaking out against it and a lot of it's starting to come through in the music or you might have these other alternative ways to talk about it um like rapper no name for example has the book club she has a book club where she has these conversations about music and books and politics um and shares that with her with her audience. So just being able to establish um, this kind of uh, humming understanding of what black protest and resistance looks like in the US and around the world when art is the center of how that protest is kind of starting to take place is really, really important and useful, especially if you're thinking about the generational tensions that exist in the crevices of what that protest looks like in today's society. Well, uh, it'll be interesting in you know five years or ten years to see how Black Lives Matter really becomes a part of rap and 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 if it becomes mainstream. Um, let's just I, I want to just finish on um, one last outcast question here, which is that when they look back on their body of work, whenever that book is closed, I mean, obviously, you know, we we certainly hope uh, that more. Um, uh, that we're we're graced with more of it, although you say that you that we still have to digest what we've already got. But when they look back on where um, on their music and on their body of work, what do you hope is the, or what do they hope? Do you think is the thing that we've all taken away from the incredible art that they have um, graced us with? That it is okay to go against the grain, and going against the grain is what gets you a legacy. So. I mean, that's, that's the, the simplest way that I can, I can do it, is being willing to experiment, being willing to evolve your sound um, at the risk of not being as popular as you might have been at, in, at the top of your heyday. But I think that's what makes Outkast continuously popular and, and, and relevant, is that folks are still sampling their music, folks are still sampling their words, folks are still sampling um, what they presented to us to be this kind of ubiquitous Southern Black experience that wasn't just Atlanta, it was a Black Southern experience um, that has been translated into different avenues and different mediums of cultural expression. And for that, uh, I think they recognize that that is something that will continuously give back to, not only to, this, to the Southern community, but to just the pop culture community in general. Before we go, I want I want to ask you what Red Clay Scholar stands for. That is your social media page. What's Red Clay Scholar? Well, the simplest way to put it is because I'm from the part of the state where if you get red clay on your white sneakers, you're never getting white sneakers again. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lesson. It's a lesson. Yeah, definitely. Got it. Um, and if you could do a book on another either rap act or any act. Have you decided who the next one would be or who you think should be one? Even if you don't do it, you don't have to do it. It's not, you're not promising here. I just want to ask who you think needs to be studied the way Outcast was. You know, I don't 
Oh, I haven't thought about, I haven't thought that far. I'm still actually still on Outcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. She, she's a, she loves them. She's, she's into it. I do. I do. I she's do. Dr. Regina Bradley, the author of Chronicling Stanconia, The Rise of the Hip Hop South. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is great. This is great. Uh, certainly check out that book and her Twitter page, Red Clay Scholar, at Red Clay Scholar. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, Conversations with America's Top Nonfiction Authors and Why Their Books Matter Right Now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.